Colossians 3 is where we get to turn again this morning. Our great privilege to study in this text, Colossians 3 and verse 15. We'll look at the last half, if there is such a thing as the last half of the verse, and consider the implications of the peace that we're supposed to let rule in our hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Well, let me read beginning at verse 12 through verse 17, I believe, and then we'll look at verse 15 specifically. Verse 12 says, So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All these implications Jesus is teaching us through the Apostle Paul and saying because of our position now in Christ, there are certain expectations, not bases, not foundation for our relationship with Christ, but because we are, as it says in verse 12, elect of God, holy and beloved, because God has saved us, those of us who have put their faith in him, and we pray that each one who is here uh, is in a right relationship with God, is trusting him, and some of our children uh, that may be too young to understand all these things would, would one day also put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and realize this status of being elect of God and to become holy, which is kind of different from what we see, what we saw in our own life pre-Christ, pre-Christian days. Uh, we were not characterized by holiness. Maybe characterized by goodness as the world defines. Well, that's a good person. But holy? Mm, holy like God? That's a far cry. That's perfection. That is without any fault or any blemish, any kind of uh, uh, scandal, any kind of whatever. Holy. We in Christ are holy. We are beloved of God. So that old Christmas or children's hymn, I guess, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It tells us right here, we are beloved of God. And therefore, if we have been loved by God, if we have been made holy when we were unrighteous sinners, if we have been made elect when every choice that we had was against God, then how ought we to conduct our lives in this world? How ought we to relate to another? This implication of the gospel in a person's life is primarily in relationships, how we prove our love, how we prove God's sanctifying work in our lives is how we love one another. He says here that we should put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, graciously forgiving each other. All these things are the implications of being in Christ, not the extra super, super, um, uh, additional things that we we might, you know, mature Christians ought to put those on. But, you know, baby Christians can can be still be hateful and hating one another. No, no, no. You, have you read Titus 3 lately? It says that we should remember that we ourselves were disobedient. We were enslaved to various less hateful. It says a couple of things there, but hateful and hating one another. We think, oh, the world is so good and so loving and kind. No, kind of scratch the surface a little bit. And you start teaching the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. And all kind of hate comes out. It's not our hate. 
it's not God hating people, it's ha people hating God and disobeying him and rebelling against him. What do you mean there's a man or male and female? What do you mean marriage is between one man and one woman? What do you mean parents ought to love their children, not exasperate them? We'll see that in the next uh, little bit here in, in chapter 3. What do you mean that I ought to uh, uh, season my words with salt, you know, to give an answer, knowing how to give an answer to any person who asks? This is conflating uh, Colossians 4 and and uh, 1 Peter 3, giving a, an answer for the hope that lies within you. But also, uh, what do you mean that I should encourage and, and want to build up one of them? Isn't it dog-eat-dog -dog world? Isn't the, the survival the fittest? Ought I not be out for myself? No. No. That's not what we should be about as Christians. We lay down our lives as Jesus laid down our, his life for us while we were still sinners. We lay down our lives for the brethren. And so this the implication of salvation is so profound, so not just out there, not just something for the, the mature Christians, it's for anybody who's in Christ. God expects us to live differently. And it's not just an expectation, it is an enablement. Whatever God commands, he also empowers us to fulfill. Well, how do he do that? Well, by saving us, for one, forgiving us, giving us a new heart, a new soul, giving us the, uh, the community of saints to help us, to encourage one another. We certainly have the scripture, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's not like God has left us, uh, you know, he makes all these demands upon us and he doesn't lift a finger to help. No, that's the Pharisees who did that. That's the rabbis from the Pharisees, the rabbis over the 2,000 years since the destruction of the temple. That's the rabbis who lay upon, uh, you know, uh, commandment and ordinance and requirement upon requirement. Jesus doesn't do that. Repent, turn away from your sin, believe in the gospel, you have life. And when you have life, then you want to please God. It does change your conduct. It does change your outlook. It does change your words. It does change your attitude. It does change how you relate to issues and troubles and trials of life. Christ makes a huge difference in our lives. And that's what we are celebrating in these verses. And that's what we see amazingly portrayed in the church as we love one another. Put on love is what he says here in verse 14. Now, verse 15, we've, I've kind of reviewing all that. Verse 15 is where we are. We studied last time the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I won't belabor all that point, but just to say three things about peace. First is that we have peace with God, where we were used to be, where we used to be sinners and enemies of God, alienated from God, separated from God. We've been made peaceful. We have that that enmity, that strife, that separation has been taken away through Christ, through the blood of Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. We have peace with God. He also gives us the peace of God. So that is the, the mentality, the peaceful mind, the, the calm demeanor, the, the patient while suffering kind of uh, situation, the peace with God, which enables us then, of course, to love one another, to show compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, all those wonderful things. The peace of God changes how we view not just people, but just trying situations, uh, difficulties in life. And then finally, thirdly, the peace that we have with one another peace with God, the peace of God, and the peace with one another that we celebrate. And that's what informs the rest of this verse, really, in verse 15, that peace that we have with one another. Now, we always have to keep in mind the context of this verse, the context of this teaching is Paul in prison, by the way, in Rome, writing to a church that he did not found, and because and, I mean, he founded churches all over the, all over the Mediterranean uh, world, ancient Roman world, and yet this church in Colossae, he did not found. It was founded by Epiphras and um, 
Epaphras had come to Paul in Rome and was telling about the difficulties the church was going through. And so Paul wrote this letter and encouraged them with obviously what we've been studying. But he is writing to probably a mixed Jewish Gentile congregation, probably pri primarily uh, Gentile, but with some Jewish flavor and maybe some Jewish and not Romans 10, is it or 9? says that the Jews, those who are ethnic uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jews are enemies for the gospel's sake because they don't acknowledge Jesus, Yeshua, is the Messiah, Christ come as promised and foretold by the, by the prophets. But they are beloved for the sake of the fathers because of the covenants, because of the word of God coming through the Jewish people. So when I say the Jewish people... Uh, I have that in mind, that they are enemies because of the gospel, but beloved because of the fathers, because of their heritage, because of even the promises that God will fulfill to ethnic Israel in the latter days. But in that church in Colossae, there were some troublemakers. There were some Jewish or Judaizing, which is to say those who wanted to make Gentiles come under the law. Okay, you can believe in that Jesus and stuff, and we all believe in Jesus, right? But we've got to keep the law of Moses. Circumcision, kosher laws, Sabbath days, festival days. We've got to keep all those things and love Jesus at the same time. It'll be fine. No, Paul says, don't fall for that. You do not need to add to Christ anything to be your justification, to be your confidence in the day of judgment. Whereas these Judaizers were tro causing troubles for the Gentiles. And even, kind of like in our modern day, differentiating between this person who has the something and this person who doesn't have the something. And making kind of enforcing that discord and and the fomenting uh, uh, unrest and and unpeace or unpeace dispeace dis distress whatever you want to say about that and the issue between Jew and Gentile was was a live issue in that day we don't appreciate that so much because as I'm looking we're primarily Gentile I would think maybe some of us have some Jewish ancestry but uh, that doesn't really matter because we saw back in verse thirteen is it that there is no, uh, no, is verse 11, that there is no difference, no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. Christ is all and in all. In other words, it's what, Christ is what matters, not your, we could go back through that list, a, a Greek or Jew, not your ethnic heritage. If you're either you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, that kind of simplifies the equation. Uh, that you, so whether your ethnic heritage is, is Greek or Jew doesn't matter. Whether you are religious observant, circumcised or uncircumcised, that doesn't matter either. Doesn't matter at all. And extend that out, festival keeping and Sabbath day and the kosher laws and all the, the, the special ordinances of the law, it doesn't matter. Whether you are a barbarian, a Scythian, that's a cultural distinction. Barbarians were non-Greek speaking, just people that, that um, babbled. In fact, that word barbarian kind of mimics the, the talk that the Greeks thought Anybody who doesn't speak Greek just babbles, just a barbarian out there. And the Scythians were the worst of the worst, the, uh, these nomadic warrior folks that would come in and uh, just destroy things and, and were, were not just barbarians, they were violent, evil, pagan, heathen, nasty people. And then, of course, social classes, doesn't matter, slave or free man. So in other words, it doesn't matter who you are or where you came from, anybody can trust Christ. Now, that's a joyous belief, but that causes problems in the church. When you realize, I mean, here you have a noble-minded, Greek-speaking, whatever, blah, 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 Jewish 
Well, he can't be Greek. Well, anyway, and, and he looks over this other person over here who's a barbarian and just, just condescends. Well, James has words about that. Those who are rich and, and, and you look to oh, the rich person, you get a special seat. You know, these front row, nobody ever sits here. So we ought to. Uh, anyway, I digress. Um, the distinctions, the differentiation, the hatred that was going on in the church because of these distinctions, it's a real thing. And it is being resurrected for whatever reason in this 21st century of hating. And you think hating, well, that's kind of a harsh word. Well, yes, it is a harsh word, but that's what's going on. Hatred toward one another, despising one another because of ethnic background, because of religious background, whether Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or non-atheistic, you know, atheistic, whatever. Coming to Christ, Christ is all and in all. Whether we have any social classes, social distinctions, whether we have uh, um, cultural, you know, uh, language and, and other things. Coming to Christ removes all these barriers. How does that inform this verse? The peace that we have with one another helps to smooth out those differences. We can look past. Do we need to look past? Do we need to even, you know, some people would say, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Well, yes, in a certain respect, we, we don't judge on, on the skin tone. Uh, we don't judge on whether you're male or female or your age. I remember, was it uh, Ronald Reagan? He was asked back in the, one of his debates, he says, you're, you're, a, you're an old guy, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. The debate moderator was saying, you're, you're a rather old guy. Do you, do, you, uh, do you see an issue with age in, uh, this, in this campaign? Because I think he was running against Mondale, maybe, who was younger than him. And Mr. Reagan, as his wit was just sharp as a tack, he says, no, I will not judge my opponent because he's young. So there, he turned right on his head. But judging people in terms of their age, I mean, even a child is known by his actions, whether his conduct is good and right. There is, we, there's a difficulty, not so much in our, uh, well, there's a difficulty in that we keep our children, or this way, we expect too much of our young children and not enough of our older children. We expect our young children to be adult and our older children to be youthful or to allow them irresponsibility, I guess is what I'm getting at. Lack of wisdom, discernment. We flip it on its head. We expect too much of our young people. Let kids be kids. Let them grow. Let them explore. Let them... I saw something. I think we have a sticker or something in our house that said mud washes off. It does. And let them explore. Let them dig holes. But when they're older, sometimes we don't expect as much out of them. I'm gone to meddling or gone from preaching in the meddling. I'm sorry about that. But the, this, the issues of distinctions of, of our backgrounds that cause cliques. And this group is, you know, the, the, the family of, of this characteristic and this non-family, single, whatever. Now, we are one body in Christ. We are together. And there are peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts as we relate to one another, as we think about how do we interact with each other, how can I encourage this person? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let that guide your thinking, your evaluation, your words to another, how you offer your services to another. You don't have a checklist, say, well, are you this, are you that, are you this? Well, I'll help you then. No, the peace of Christ motivates us, enables us to serve one another in love. Let that rule in our hearts, not just uh, quietly whisper little sweet nothings in our ear, but to rule, to dominate, to direct, to 
a referee to help us to discern what is the good thing that we ought to do. And then, of course, we do it. That's wisdom, knowing what to do and then doing it. He says that, that peace in the peace of Christ ought to rule in our hearts. And then he says, to which indeed you were called. Okay, so what is he saying here? To which indeed you were, what is this which thing he's talking about? It's that peace. In other words, to rephrase that statement, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You were called to that peace in one body. You were called to peace. Now, what is this idea of calling? You know, so many people carry cell phones, smartphones, and then don't use it for phone calling anymore. It's all texting and social media and whatever. But it used to be that you called somebody. And of course, before that, before 100 years ago or 180, whatever, Alexander Graham Bell, uh, before that, we're not just talking about calling, you know, ringing somebody up on the phone. Calling has a, a very distinct uh, reference in the scripture, this idea of call, the calling of God, the, the being called of God. In fact, just to dilate on that idea for a little bit, God is the one who's calling. It's not anybody else. It's not our parents. It's not our family who calls us uh, in this way. We, we can summon and call one another in different places, but it is God who calls. Throughout the scriptures, we see the, the certainty that God has called each one in faith. Uh, uh, Galatians 5.8 says this persuasion is not from him who calls you, for example. Or 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24 says, Faithful is he who called you, and he will bring it to pass. He will do it in this way. So God is the one who calls, which is a good thing. Well, what is this call, uh, or who, to who receives this call? Thankfully, we see it. I mean, he's, he's saying you, and, you were called in one body. And so we see Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter, religious, cultural, ethnic, whatever distinction doesn't matter. God is the one who calls you. He has called everybody. Well, he's called those, we'll see it in the context here. He has called Jew and Gentile like, doesn't matter your, your, your cultural, religious, social, um, um, religious status. We, we are all can be recipients of this call. Well, what is this call? There are two aspects to it in the nature of the call. And one is here, as it said in verse 15, you were called in one body. This is what we might refer to, theologians would refer to it, just for distinction, for clarity purposes, the effectual calling or the internal call, or even, to use more biblical uh, term, terminology, is regeneration or new birth. This is the call of God, the regeneration that we all need. Jesus says, you, you know, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And so this internal or effectual call is God's calling upon us to bring us into new life. Wow, that's good news because old life, the life that we inherited from Adam, judgment, condemnation, separation from God. But now in Christ being called out of that, even verse... Um, 13, he, yes, he rescued us, Verse chapter 1, verse 13, he rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son of his love and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the calling, because if, if God did not call, where would we be? In the authority of darkness. We would still be in our sins, but he's called us out of that and put us on a path of salvation. In that book, I was holding up the biblical doctrine, the theology book that we're studying. Uh, they define the effectual calling this way. They say, uh, God, the effectual calling is God calling the sinner out of his deadness and by the creative power of that call imparting spiritual life to him, enabling him to believe in Christ for salvation. Now, this may step on some toes. What do you say enabling him to believe? Aren't, is, doesn't the call 
come after faith? And, and well, I'm glad you asked that question. There is the order of salvation that we studied back in verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. We looked at various components of what you might consider uh, uh, the, the salvation that we have in Christ. And by the way, if you have any of these, then you have all of these. Let me say it this way. If you're saved, you're saved. And you will be saved. You have been saved. You're saved. Because God is the one who's doing it. The, this is somewhat the order of salvation. This is suggested from the scripture. This is suggested from a lot of things. I won't uh, belabor the point because we did a few weeks ago uh, looking at these different aspects. Election is God's foreknowledge or predestination, choosing those whom who would believe. Well, it's not, that's not very fair, is it? Well, you understand that in Adam, everybody deserves death. Everybody, The wages of sin is death. Everybody is going into eternal condemnation. For God in his mercy and his love to rescue some, not because he foreknew and said, that's a good person. Yeah, that's that's one that'll choose me. And that one over there, I think that's a good person too. No, God in his election, God in his choice chose some out of that domain of darkness, out of that authority of darkness to become into the kingdom of his beloved son. How did he do that? Well, regeneration or the calling, the effectual call. This is what this is where verse 15, uh, Colossians 3.15 fits in. The calling of God to peace. That's regeneration. That's renewal. That's the giving of a new heart. We experience that or we respond to that effectual call by conversion. That is to say, repentance and faith. That's our part, part in this salvation process, uh, up to this point anyway. Repenting and believing in the gospel. We respond. Now, Jesus is the one who gives the ability to do that, enabling the unbeliever, the, 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 the person, to believe and to uh, call upon the name of the Lord. Different use of call, by the way. When God calls us, he's the one who's doing the calling. When we call upon God, we say, God, save us, deliver us. I trust in Jesus. I put my faith in him. That leads to justification. Justification is being declared righteous. Well, how do we do that? By grace, through faith, we are made righteous. We are declared righteous. We are justified. And so you see all these things coming together. If you are chosen of God, then God calls you, enables you to believe. He uh, regenerates you, gives you a new heart, which leads to your conversion, whenever that may be, a conversion that is based in repentance and faith, not one or the other. I'll repent and I'll believe later, or I'll believe and I'll repent later. No, it's, it's both and. You turn from wickedness and you turn to God in faith which leads to justification the gift righteousness imputed righteousness which then celebrates in the adoption of sons we're brought near through the blood of Christ we're brought right into his family and this this adoption or this sonship is celebrated throughout throughout scripture as well that leads to a sanctification both positional which might just call be called justification being made righteous but also being made righteous in our behavior, in our conduct. Man, you've seen some believers. You, you don't doubt that they're believers, but ooh, they, God has some work to do on them. they got pretty rough around the edges still. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I think I've referenced this before. Uh, just one example of an unregenerate uh, heart is uh, use of, of foul language. And I remember I took two different examples. One guy who, who used the name of the Lord in vain just constantly, every other word almost, which is kind of, boy, that'd be a long speech, but... Uh, every, just constantly taking the name of the Lord in vain. When he was saved, it's done. Never used the Lord's name wickedly, violently again. Whereas another guy I know, oh, it was a struggle. He was in Christ, but he still 
he, in fact, he, he had to wear a rubber band on his wrist because whenever he was about to say a, a nasty word, he would give himself a little thing to remind himself, hey, stop it. So sanctification is growing holiness. We are in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. But, oh, we've got a lot of work to do. God is working on us, growing in holiness. We are persevering. We're abiding in Christ. This perseverance that God has in and through us, but also we persevere. We fight to the end. We fight the good fight, as Paul said. And we want to be found in Christ. We want to be found holy. And, and again, it's not because of what we do. It's what Christ is doing in us, and what we allow him to do in our lives. And of course, we look forward to that future day of glorification, uh, the resurrection of the body, and not just this old body that's you know full of sin and, 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 uh, and evil desires and so forth, but a glorified resurrection body, just as the Lord has. The point again here is, if you are elect, then you have a whole package. This other people refer to this as the chain of salvation. It, it goes together. Now, some people are on different paths or, or different, not different paths, but different uh, stages along the path. And, and yet, uh, th this is the package deal. If we could have a perspective of salvation as God does, God who is outside of time, when he looks down and he sees election, uh, let me get an order, election, calling, conversion, he sees all this for everybody in all time, even the people yet future, and he sees the complete package accomplished through Christ. Wow, that gives us hope. That gives us confidence that he, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in us, he'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. We can be confident in that. Well, if we are confident in that, then we come back to this idea of calling back in verse 15. We have been called by God, regenerated. We have a new life, and we've been called to certain things. This calling, by the way, it's an internal call, but it comes externally, which is to say it is a call from a preacher, an evangelist, to believe, to repent, that conversion part. Uh, people won't, how will they believe unless there's, there's a preacher, and how will they preach unless they're sent, Romans 10 teaches us. So the external call, you see all these different aspects of this one word, that God is the one who calls, calls Jew and Gentile, whatever kind of people alike. It's an effectual call, which is to say God is the one doing it. Uh, God is the one who enables us to respond to it. The call comes through the gospel. It is the, the and this is a different use of the word call, because that external call, the preaching of the gospel throughout the whole world, well, not everybody believes. Not everybody is in that chain of salvation or that order of salvation. There are many who reject the gospel. They say, I don't need that. What are you talking to me nonsense for? So, and we, Jesus saw that. Many people rejected his word. Many people did not believe in this gospel. And yet the calling comes in time through a preacher, through a, a, a summons to repent and believe and to live, to commit to living a life for Christ, to have him in their thoughts and and to want to please him with their lives. And so that external call comes through preaching. But there is a purpose for this. We saw it in terms of salvation, but there are other practical elements of that progressive sanctification even. Here it says you were called to peace. You were called to peace. First Corinthians 7 uh, verse 15 also says God has called us to peace. There's in the context of marriage and marriage of an unbeliever to a, to a believer. And point is, God has called us to peace. What can you do to live at peace even when your spouse is not submissive to Christ and not wanting to honor him? As far as it depends on, on you, you live in peace. You be you know put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Uh, have a heart of compassion, kindness, all those wonderful 
uh, truths, the characteristics that are able, we're able to accomplish because of what Christ is doing in us. The scripture also says we're called as saints. We're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart unto God. And uh, you can see that in Romans 1, verses 6 and 7. We are called of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, uh, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. So we ought to live different to the world, different from the world, and to reference or, or demonstrate God's new society, God's new pattern of living in Christ, which is so different from what the world offers. God has called us to fellowship, fellowship with God, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but also fellowship with one another. We have fellowship, and that's what he's referring to here. You were indeed called to peace in one body, the fellowship we have with one another. A couple other things we're called to, and we'll finish this verse, is that we're called to eternal life. We're called to eternal life, to glory. First uh, Timothy 6 and verse 12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That eternal life uh, which to which you were called. And you made, Timothy, made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. God is the one who calls. God calls us to eternal life. God has called us to freedom. We take this verse as one of the verses that inform our name as Liberty Bible Church, Galatians 5.13. You were called to freedom. So we are called to freedom. We're called to not be subject to the rudimentary things, the, the laws of Moses and the, the pretty sophisticated philosophies that Paul says those are empty philosophies, vain, vain musings. You were called to freedom. You were called to live a life that pleases God, not based on your works, but based on faith in Christ. But hey, don't allow your freedom or don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Well, I, I am not subject or I'm, I'm not bound by all those laws anymore. It doesn't mean that you can just live like a pagan or live like a, a heathen person. No. Through love, serve one another. You subject your own desires, your own appetites, your own wants and, and whatever to serve one another, to establish other people, to encourage them, to build them up in the faith, to uh, evangelize, to share the gospel. We serve one another in love. One other thing maybe we have that we're called to, yes, is that is Christ-likeness. We have been called to Christ-likeness or sanctification, to be made more like more like Jesus. And just for example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 says, To this end, Paul is so much praying for the people. He says, To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill all your good pleasure for the goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. To be like Jesus, to be Christ-like, to reference. So when people look at us, they say, whoa. Jesus said, Matthew 5, uh, glorify or let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify, not you, but your Father who's in heaven. When they see something that is totally supernatural, so totally out of this world in a, in a, in a real sense, uh, spiritual in a real sense, there's so many people that use, I'm spiritual. Really? Is that holy spiritual or just kind of woo-woo? Because a lot of people claim, one famous actor says, uh, I'm not the defender of faith. I'm not a, how do you say, I'm not a person of, of uh, the faith. I'm a person of faith. I just believe, it's fideism, a, a belief in belief. You know, I, anybody who has faith in whatever you want to believe in, it's fine. Find your center, find your higher power. No, find God as he's revealed in scripture. That is a spiritual person. That is the one who will be come and be driven to Christ and respond in repentance and faith. Called to Christ's likeness is what we are after. Well, he says here, we were called 
to peace and called into or in one body. We are in one body. Now, Paul, even in this short little letter, has used the word body in several different aspects. Here, he's, I believe he's talking about the church, but he also talks about the body of Christ. He talks about physical bodies. He talks about the, um, uh, the circumcision, not just of a piece of the body, but the whole body, removal of the body, the flesh, and the circumcision of Christ. He talks about the severe treatment of the body, which these Judaizing false teachers said, you need to, you need to treat your body harshly. You need to make sure that you beat your body in the submission. Well, that's what Paul says, but they were using it not as a result of sanctif- or a result of justification, but as a basis of justification. You've got to do this in order for God to like you. No, God likes me, and therefore I do this. You see the difference there? It's not earning God's love. It is celebrating God's love. He has loved us, and we should live differently in our lives. Uh, Paul says we have been called to this body, the church, which Paul is talking about all throughout this this um, this epistle, this letter. He says about Christ, Christ is the head of the body, the church. So he defines, what does he mean by body? Physical body of our body or physical body of Jesus, he also talks about. But he's talking about the church, the uh, assembly of redeemed people, regenerate people. He says in verse 24, talking about his body, which is the church, lest we think, we're not sure what his body is. It's kind of an undescribed, undefined something. No, it is those who are in Christ, those who have put their faith in him, those who are, when God looks at us, he says, you're in Christ. And when he looks at somebody else who's not in Christ, that person is not in the body, not in that household of faith, as Paul says in Galatians 6. We are to hold fast the head. Now, not we need to walk around with holding our head on our shoulders. Some people ought to do that maybe because we sometimes we walk out without thinking or we speak without thinking but this is not holding fast to christ these false teachers are not they're not giving honor to jesus here they're they're giving honor to themselves and they're trying to draw disciples away after themselves and and not holding fast to the head from whom paul says in colossians uh, 2 19 from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments so every every piece of the body grows with the growth that's from god that's what we want as we minister to one another we're called to peace in one body, this fellowship of believers. Uh, we were uh, called in one body. This verse in Ephesians, the parallel ideas, we were called in one body. Christ is the one who bring, who tears down that dividing wall. All those distinctions that we can, we can have, some biblical, Jew and Gentile, but some unbiblical, uh, that, that have no bearing on how we ought to relate to one another. No, we have been reconciled to one another. We have peace with one another. Therefore, we have been called into one body. There's one body and one spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse 4. We are committed to the building up of the body of Christ. We are uh, referencing, even in in marriage, we reference uh, Ephesians 5.23 says, The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Christ is the savior of the body. And we see the implications of that, that we should... Uh, because we are members of his body, we ought to love, especially in a husband-wife relationship. There is that implication of body life. What is all this about? You know that you don't get, we talked about this a little bit last time, we don't get the choice of the children that you receive from the Lord. You don't necessarily get the choice of those who come and identify with your congregation, your little local church. You don't get the choice of who is going to be your near neighbor in heaven or in the new heavens and new earth. But it doesn't matter. If we are centered on Christ and the other person is centered on Christ, 
it's going to be good. And we'll grow together. We will forgive one another. We will bear with one another. We'll show kindness one to another. It's a mutual thing. It's not just, you know, I have to always give to you. You are so needy and I have, I'm just full and I'm perfect in every way. That's the wrong approach to anything. You need, I need at different times. I sin against you. You sin against me. It's, it's, are we surprised at that? Why are we surprised that sin happens, even in the church? Don't we, don't we know we are progressively being saved? Don't you know, as you look at each other, that that person, I may not know it, but that person has some maybe some deep issues, uh, habitual or, or life-dominating sins of thought uh, or, or practice or, or, or uh, thought in the sense of, I don't know if God loves me. I don't think God is for me. I, I trust him in everything, but kind of... Uh, as a, a skittish little kitty cat or something. I, you know, I fear God because I think he's going to squash me like a bug. No. Do you come to God as a loving, tender-hearted father? Do you come to him? And that is something that we need to help each other with. We often think of, of the sins of, of uh, I don't know, do you almost think of the sin of gluttony? I shouldn't say that at holiday time. But do you ever talk to somebody? You are a glutton, sir. I mean, you, you there's no dessert that you did not take from that dessert table last week. I, I noticed. I, I actually took a tally because I've noticed. And do we ever comment or would ever reprove anybody about gluttony? We do for some reason about lust or we do about uh, words, violent words. But some of these other what are called respectable sins we don't deal with. The point is, if we're in one body, we should strive with one another, not against one another, but with one another, that Christ would be established in us that we would grow, that be less like ourselves today, more like Christ tomorrow, growing always, expecting sin, expecting foibles. You know, that's kind of a nice way to say it, but errors, mistakes, disobedience to God, and not being harsh or rude unless the person's not repentant. And of course, there's other implications of that. But always spurring one another toward love and good deeds, encouraging one another toward Christ. This is our responsibility in the body. We're called to peace in one body, let's act like one body. Isn't it wonderful when you come together with the church, you may haven't in the, in the church meeting, you haven't been together for the week or maybe you saw or interact with people during the course of the week, but when you come together, there is joy, there's rejoicing, there's tears, there are hugs, there's sharing of, of, of joys and sorrows. There's, there's a fellowship that we experience in the body that we don't really experience, even in our own family, coworkers, neighborhood, we have relationships, we have love and kindness, but in the body of Christ, there is that wonderful harmony, that peace, that love, that laying down of our lives for each other, wanting to minister the grace of God, to encourage one another, build each other up in the most holy faith. We have great responsibility in the local church, but also in the church at large. And as we have sung in the past, the church um, militant, which is to say the church on earth, but also the church triumphant or the church um, in, in heaven, those who have gone on before us, we have, wow, we have a great fellowship. Isn't it wonderful to think about uh, having a, a sharing eternity with Augustine, for example, or uh, Paul, the apostle, or Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, or some of these other characters that we read about in scripture and say, whoa, we're going to, we have a great fellowship. Uh, we're one body. Not because they deserved it, because it's because of what Christ has done. Christ, in his love, laid down his life for us. It says that we should, again, not as a basis of our salvation, but as a fruit of salvation, we should let that peace of Christ rule in our hearts, and then that influences the relationships that we have in the church 
when there are difficulties and skirmishes and disagreements in the church even, how do we handle it? Do we, sometimes separation is necessary. We looked at that, I think, last week. Paul and Barnabas separated over the utility of uh, John Mark, the nephew of Barnabas. And they left and went their separate ways. Now, they reconciled at a later time and, and were co-workers again. But sometimes there are disagreements that cause separation and uh, um, removal of that relationship. But that ought to be few and far between. We should, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3 and 4, that we should strive or, or labor or being diligent to maintain un the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Got to strive for this. Do you realize that sin separates? But God, in His in His loving kindness, brings us together with Him. We have peace with God, with the peace of God, and we can have peace with one another. The last phrase here is also a command: "Let the peace of Christ rule" is a command. But He says, "Be thankful." What in the world are you talking about being thankful for? We're talking about being in the church. We're talking about being spiritual and all this. And now He says, "Be thankful." Do you know that gratitude or thankfulness or thanksgiving is a key mark of both Christians and, conversely, non-Christians, which is to say, for non-Christians, they don't give thanks to God. I mean, they may give lip service, oh, you know, thank God for that. But do they really mean it? It's kind of like when they use the name of the Lord in vain, do they, are they really talking to or about the Lord or just using his name as a curse word? When people say, thank God for that, are they really thanking God? Do they have a gratitude for God? Those who are in Christ are full of thanksgiving. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. We give thanks. Do you know, in this brief letter Paul wrote to the Colossians, is the greatest concentration of the use of this word thanks or thanksgiving or, or giving thanks or gratitude, it's the greatest concentration of thanksgiving in all of the New Testament. You think, okay, what did you say? In other words, he talks about thanks, being thankful more in Colossians than anywhere else in, in the New Testament. In other words, it's a key component of what the Colossian church needed. You should be thankful. Instead of striving to try to be more pleasing to God through works, through your festival things, through your circumcision, through your kosher, you know, through worship of angels, no. Be thankful. That solves so much. You're thankful. We receive grace, and we should be thankful. We say thank you, God, for that wonderful grace. And we want to live in a, a way that pleases God, but we are thankful he says, be thankful. Not just once a year. We just had our Thanksgiving, so now we can be grumpy all the rest of the year. No, we give thanks always. Always be thankful. Always express, well, be thankful, but then to express it. Be thankful and to, and to say thank you. This, uh, well, I won't rehearse all the different times, several different times in, in Colossians. He says, we should be thankful. He says it here in verse 15. He says it again in verse uh, 16. And as he say in 17, so he says being thankful, uh, gratefulness and thankfulness, giving thanks. So three times in three verses here. You, I mean, you get the idea that thanksgiving, that being thankful is, is, a, is a big idea. It helps us not to be anxious too, because uh, Philippians 4, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We are thankful because God is active. We may think God... Uh, are you aware of what's going on right now down here? Um, are you helping? Are you, you going to do something about it? When we are thankful, that helps us to look back and see God has always been faithful. God has always done. Always, always, always. And do you think 
this, this time is going to be any different. Can we be thankful? That informs our hope, our trust, our faith in Christ. That we should, if we are thankful to God, then guess how that will affect our view toward other people? We can be thankful. Oh, that person is a thorn in my flesh. You know, even Paul had a thorn in his flesh. But then he realized, oh, God is using that to teach me that in my weakness, God is made strong in and through me. Thank you, God, for that thorn in my flesh. You may view me as your, my, your thorn in your flesh, or vice versa. But the point is, anybody, even a thorn can be useful to make us more like Christ. Be thankful. Wow. That changes the way that we view each other. We don't view each other as threats, as, as opponents. To, I need to better myself or this person. Not competitively against one another, but competitively uh, spurring one another on toward love and good deeds, as I said in Hebrews 10 and 24. We are thankful and we strive with one another so that Christ would be made perfect in our lives. This is a tremendous passage because it teaches us when we get together, how are, how are we to conduct ourselves? What kind of things should we be doing and saying and, and carrying on with as we are together? Things that would tend toward peace. Things that would tend toward resolving differences. Things that would tend toward, uh, again, encouraging one another in the right way, not just allowing aberrant or or behavior that is violent to the gospel, violent to the person, violent to the people. It's not loving to let somebody continue in sin. We speak the truth. We're valiant for the truth. And we are aggressive in our love. Be thankful. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the truth of your word, the certainty of our calling, that you are the one who brings all these things to pass. You are the one who redeems, who regenerates, who converts, brings us to that knowledge of the truth, that we would repent and turn from the foolishness of sin, the emptiness of wickedness. I mean, it's empty in terms of what it delivers other than death and destruction, but trying to seek peace and happiness and satisfaction and joy through the world. Wrong. That's wrong. Please help us to find at your right hand pleasures forevermore. Please help us to resolve as David. I, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I don't need anything else from the, except the Lord. Paul says, uh, that we should be content, whether we have food and, and, and shelter, we should be content, and contentment is such great gain. Please help us to be thankful to you. Please help us then to live at peace with one another. Please help us to evidence the reality that you are in our lives, changing us, making us more like Christ. Please help us to grow. We want to be more like Christ. We want to be conformed to his image. We want to be less like we are today, yesterday, the day before. We want to be progressively transformed by the reigning of our mind, we want to know your will and then, of course, to do it. Thank you for your perseverance with us. Please help us to persevere with one another. Be patient, bearing with one another, forgiving, graciously forgiraciously forgiving each other. Thank you for your mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.